brought this up again uh, just a little bit a little bit world going in the wrong direction but we'll be okay and uh, the Lord our God is an amazing God and he is with us as always why are we here that's what we're looking at from now to pretty much the end of the year up to Advent Why do we exist? And we're still looking at the concept of worship. There's an old story about a man who had a dream. And in that dream, he he was taken by an angel into a church on a Sunday morning. And he watched everything that was going on. And he saw the keyboard musician playing vigorously. The musicians playing their instruments with such gusto. The the praise team singing out loud, so to speak. But the problem was he didn't hear anything. He saw, but he could not hear. When the minister rose to speak, his lips moved, but there was no volume at all. So confused, he looks at the angel because he wants to understand what's going on. And in his dream, the angel said, this is the way it sounds to us in heaven. You hear nothing, Because there's nothing to hear. These people are engaged in the form of worship, but their thoughts are on other things, and their hearts are far away. Folks, worship was never meant to be like that. It was never meant to be like that. God wants so much more. Uh, Just a little over a month now, a month and a half ago, I shared with you a brief illustration of David dancing before the Lord as the ark was brought into Jerusalem and how Michael, his wife, shamed him. How dare you act so brash? You're acting like the common people. Why are you doing this? And this is a paraphrase, but I believe it's very accurate. David said, look, I'm going to worship my God and I'm going to dance before the Lord no matter what you think. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite expositors of the 20th into the 21st century, shares a little bit about this, uh, the background of it. So he said, there must have been many joyful moments in the lifetime of King David, but to judge from the narratives, the brightest of all must have been when the Ark of God was brought to Jerusalem from its temporary resting place in the house of Obed-Edom. Led by hundreds of priests, the people were, thousands of people were assembled. There were choirs and an orchestra, and when the priests stepped out with the ark, their steps were measured by the sound of blaring ram's horns, trumpets, clash of cymbals, the plucking of myriads of lyres and harps. And David was so delighted He threw decorum aside and danced among the people before the Lord. Now, that much you know. What you may not know, unless you are a very careful reader of God's word, voice points out in the following chapter, David gave a psalm to be sung. And the thing about it, that psalm... In First Chronicles 16, particularly verses 23 through 33, 
is almost verbatim the text we're going to look at today. Psalm 96. Now, there are also words from Psalm 105, Psalm 106. And there are some people who say David really didn't have anything to do with this psalm. The Chronicles picked it up from Psalm 96 and placed it in. I'm not convinced by that. But I will give you this much. Even if that wasn't the historical moment, and I believe it was, that this song became part of Israel's worship, it had to have been something absolutely amazing that brought it about. So we're going to take a look at Psalm 96 today. And I want you to hear with both ears, and I want you to hear with your heart. And I'm going to ask you, if you will, to stand as we take a look at the word of the Lord together. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of the earth, of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this amazing and beautiful psalm, David called upon all creation to praise the Lord. Everything in creation, praise God. Now, answer your question for me. Does that include us? Yeah. Yes, there should be no hesitation there. We're part of creation. We are part of the group that is called to give honor and glory and praise to this God. And I want you to know that I believe when we come together, what we are being called upon to offer to God is nothing less than wholehearted worship. Wholehearted worship. Now, that can mean different things to different people. For some people, if they hear that term wholehearted worship... They're going to think about a crowd of people who are worshiping the Lord, complete freedom. There is no set order of worship. They're standing before God. They're raising their hands and blessing Him. There are shouts. Hallelujah would be heard here. Praise the Lord. For others, when they think of wholehearted worship, they think of their lives and their tradition. Maybe a, a quiet, dignified 
worship of the Lord in a small church, small evangelical church somewhere here in the South. Many of you grew up in that situation. Others will think of a more liturgical, more formal church. The pastor preaches in robes. And there is a set order of worship. And for those in the free worship movement, it's hard for us to understand how that can be real, but they've had time to prepare. They know what's going to happen. They're getting their hearts ready all the time. And then for others, wholehearted worship brings them back to memories of worshiping God in somebody's house, a little house church. Not very many people there, and they're just in intimacy and warmth of fellowship worshiping God. Now, having said this, I must say this. I didn't even move on that one. Praise the Lord. Wholehearted worship, hear me very carefully. Wholehearted worship has nothing to do with style of worship. Now, that's not one of your main points. I just want you to hear it. I'm not going to be talking about styles. I actually believe anyone with the right heart can find a meaningful worship experience in all of those traditions. In all of them. Okay, let's try that. In all of the traditions that can be found. So what is wholehearted worship going to be like? Can I give you anything that will help you know exactly what's supposed to be happening here? Well, this morning as we look at our text, we're going to see elements of wholehearted worship. We're going to see what should be part of every time we come together Or every time you worship God in the quietness of your own heart, in your prayer closet, as it were. So let's jump in. And I want you to hear. Wholehearted worship is God-honoring. Wholehearted worship is God-honoring. Now, this, this passage gets me excited. I absolutely love it. And I want you to to love it as much as I do. And to help us with that, listen to the amazing descriptive terms given for the Lord in this passage. First of all, it is revealed he is great. Now that word great talks about his remarkable magnitude, that he is actually greater than anything else in all of the created order. God is great. And very specifically... This idea, nothing is greater, is found in our text when the psalmist says, he is more to be feared than all of the gods. Why? Because he's greater. Now, some people said, oh, look, the psalmist is recognizing they're real gods, but that's not his point. He is greater than all of the gods because all of the gods of the nations are idols. Now, this is the cool point. I don't normally talk a lot about Hebrew or Greek words. But you need to know there's a play on words in our text that is absolutely great. All of the gods, the word translated there, gods, is Elohim. 
You've heard it before. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's a plural noun, and when it is used of God, the God of Israel, it's talking about his majesty and his wonder. But it is also used throughout the Bible the same way we use our word God. If you tell me you believe in God, that doesn't tell me anything until I find out who is this God you believe. So the gods of this world are idols. And here's the play on the word. The word translated idol is Elilim. They sound kind of alike, don't they? Elohim, Elilim. They even look alike in the Hebrew text. They resemble each other. And what does the word Elilim mean? Nobodies. Nothings. Zilches. And when you worship the gods of the nation, you are worshiping an ineffective, worthless, futile thing. God is greater than all of the gods because the gods are nothing. And then he's majestic. And I get really happy at this point in the text. There are two sets of nouns. Two couplets. And they are personified. It almost sounds like he's talking about people. Splendor and majesty are before our God. That word before means literally face to face. Splendor talks about brightness, light. Probably influences the the Hebrew idea of the Shekinah glory of God. The brightness of God that is so overwhelming. Majesty is that quality that brings about reverence, inspires awe. There before him. And then strength and glory are in a sanctuary. Strength is literally here talking about strength, either physical or mental. But the ability to get done what needs to be done, glory is talking about honor. Honor. Being highly respected. So splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and might. Uh, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. And I don't think whether it's a heavenly or earthly is important here. It could be both. But what's the point? Splendor and majesty are before God because they are characteristics of who he is. It's his splendor. His majesty, strength and glory in the sanctuary because it is his sanctuary filled with his strength, with his glory. God has endued the sanctuary with his presence. So folks, we are being told God is amazing. Majestic. But we're also told he's holy. Did you notice that phrase? The NIV translates it, worship him in the splendor of his holiness. I will let you know that most modern translations follow somewhere along with NIV. Most of them follow very closely with one exception the New American Standard. 
Now, the New American Standard chooses to translate it, worship God in holy attire. Now, for those of you who grew up hearing that we're supposed to wear our Sunday best, that may be the idea here. They may be influenced by that. I know that a ton of people who look at this passage will point and see, see there, that's where we are supposed to be worshiping God in our best clothes. There are two problems. First of all, in the Bible, you know who wore the only holy attire mentioned in the Bible? Priests. So when everybody is called to come and worship God, it can't be in holy attire because if you're not a priest, you can't wear the clothes. The other part, the other problem, not just the issue of holy attire. In the Bible, the Hebrew people didn't have a Sabbath best and the Christians didn't have a Sunday best. For the most part, the people of God in the ancient world were poor and they didn't have a whole lot of clothes to wear. Now, I believe they probably would have them as clean as they possibly could be. So what's the point of this text? Now, holy attire can be a legitimate translation, but we need to understand the definition of a word is not all that's there for. You also have to consider the context. And the sense of this text is worship God because he is holy. Holy. And that should evoke a sense of awe in us. I think I found it. A sense of awe, a sense of worship. That word worship here means literally to fall down on your face. And I was going to try really hard today to not illustrate that physically for you with my dizziness. But it was fall flat to the earth. Think about how many times you find somebody in the Bible experiencing the holy. They're terrified. They're terrified. So awe is a great experience. Now, what I want to say about this at its heart, what what we need to understand is that if our services fail to honor such a God, they're not wholehearted worship. If we become too familiar with God, we're doing the same thing we did last week. So we're coming to church and things are going to be what they always are. It's the same old thing. And we may say the name of God. We may sing the name of God but our minds are somewhere else. They're on whether or not we're going to get out before the other places and get to the other churches and get to the lunch quicker or I'll get to the game quicker if he quits fumbling around with his microphone. But neither can we allow our worship to be about us. And folks, I am going to meddle a little bit here. Worship is not about whether or not we have sung the style of worship songs that I like. By the way, another nice blend of chorus and hymn. It's not about whether or not Danny told an illustration that I found really cool. It's not about Danny read from the right translation for once. It's not about us. Are we here to honor God? Are we here to focus our mind and attention on Him 
who he is, what he is, and what he wants to do among us. That's where we're supposed to be. And so let us always be careful. Let us always be careful to praise enthusiastically our God who is worthy of all honor. That should be my goal every time I come before the Lord, whether it's with you corporately or whether it's in my apartment at home or in the office over at the sanctuary. I am supposed to honor God. Psalm 34 starts off with a personal note and then invites everybody along. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the world. Lord, let the afflicted here rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. And folks, you can do it whether you're singing How Great Thou Art or you are singing Because He Lives or you are singing Come, Now is the Time to Worship. We can exalt God if it's coming from our hearts to honor Him. And if we are worshiping the God who is God with all the honor due His name, then my friends, wholehearted worship is filled with joy. I know I've been talking a lot about joy lately, but I think we're in an age where I need to talk about it because we are messed up. We are in such dire straits about who we are and where we are and what we've got to do. I want you to listen. I want you to listen because there is a note of exuberant joy that runs through this song. Exuberant, excited filled with spirit, filled with heart, filled with expectation. Listen to everything that's said. All of creation will praise the magnificent Lord. All of creation. Okay. I know. Well, no, we, they should be joyfully in the static. I am not beyond the idea that what's happening right now is more than a faulty microphone. Uh, I happen to believe that the enemy will use whatever he can to sidetrack us. So be praying a little bit that that will not happen here. So here, again, let's go back to the text. All creation. All, listen again to verses 11 and 13. I love these verses. I absolutely love uh, Psalm 96, 11 through 13. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be gen- jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. That is Joy. Now, yes, this is poetic language. Yes, it is figurative language, but maybe there's something more involved. In the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul is dealing with all the beautiful things that are ours in Christ. And he talks about all of the struggles we face. 
and all of the pain of sin, but God is amazing and moving, and then he does something strange to our ears. He starts talking about the world and creation. And he says that the world is waiting in expectation for God's glory to be revealed through his children when they are revealed. Why is this so? In verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Our world is marked by sin. Paul says the world suffers. And it's waiting. It's giving the cries of childbirth waiting for God to come. The Word of God says, create a new heaven and a new earth. And then we're told Israel was to declare his praise among all peoples, all nations. When you hear the word nations in the Old Testament, that means us, Gentiles. Israel is supposed to praise. And then when the Gentiles hear and respond to God, they are supposed to praise. Why all nation? Why all Israel? Why all, all the creation? Because the psalmist says God is truly most worthy of praise. And if we praise him the way he is meant to be praised, there will be joy. The other side of that coin is if our services fail to touch our lives with joy, they are not wholehearted worship. Angel hit an important note here on the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is all about circumstance. And I know full well any one of us can come to this service on any given Sunday and be overwhelmed by what is going on in the world. I know any one of us can come with so much pain in our hearts that when we get to that back door, we're going to slap on our happy church faces whether our hearts are involved or not. But please, hear me well. If we truly look at the one who is worthy of praise, we look at everything I've said he is, if we truly remember all that he has done on our behalf, if we allow ourselves to sing a good biblical word from the songs, the songs of Zion, If we surrender to this magnificent God, joy will be found. I believe that we simply cannot meet the God of splendor and majesty, strength and glory, and not be moved to joy. I will also note, when we first encounter him, our first intention, our first reaction may be, uh-oh. Remember I say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips? We may be first hit by conviction. But when we confess, just as Isaiah did, when we forgive just as Isaiah was, then we will know the kind of joy he did. Do you know I know Isaiah was filled with joy at that moment? Because the voice of God rings out, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah me! I'll go! And he doesn't even know where God's going to send him. I just love you so much for what you've done. I've got to serve you. And it's joy. So, 
We need to be sure every time we come together, let us fill our worship with notes of joy, even in the toughest of times. Again, from Romans 8. Paul talks about all the sufferings. He says, can anything separate us from the love of God? And he goes through a list. And then, two of my favorite verses in the New Testament. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors by all. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is joy. And when we remember him and we know what he's done in spite of everything going on, we can have joy. And then, the only proper response will be give your enthusiastic joy to God. And when that happens, wholehearted worship is bursting with hope. Wholehearted worship is bursting in hope. It's not just what we have said that God, we are going to honor God, and it's not just that we have joy. We have hope. And to get that, we need to understand this passage of Scripture carefully. Understand the hope for justice, this psalm champion. Now, in Revelation, we say all the same kind of thing. How can you be joyful about judgment? How does that give you hope? Well, the people of Israel throughout their history suffered much persecution, trial. Sometimes they were facing judgment because of their own hard-heartedness. But all along the way, God kept giving hints. There's going to be a remnant. And I will restore you. I will bring you back to where you can be. And that sustained them. God is the only source of true hope for the righteousness of God's people and what God wants. C.S. Lewis points out beautifully, the ancients that lived in the... uh, And the old times lived in a world where judges usually needed to be bribed and right judgment was exceedingly hard to come by, especially for weak, poor, or disadvantaged persons. He said, in such a climate, the disadvantaged did not fear judgment, but rather longed for it because it meant a day when evil would be punished and those who did the right things for the God they loved would be vindicated. So a people who knew much pain trusted God to restore them. And that gave them hope. And again, if our services fail to reveal hope in the Lord, they're not wholehearted worship. I'm going to confess thing as a preacher, and I need you to hear me carefully and not think that I'm trying to do this. It is very tempting for any preacher to manipulate emotions of despair hopelessness, and fear, and by doing so, scare people into action. That's right. People who say, thus saith the Lord, have been known to stoke the fires of fear, 
Sometimes to try to get more people in church. Sometimes to get you to do what you are supposed to do as they see it. And today we are living in a world of fear, aren't we? We are in COVID-19 and now it's variants. We are in a world of civil unrest, a world of anger and hatred that's popping up everywhere, not just in our country. And it would be very easy to give in and give up. But what I want you to know, no matter how dark the world gets, the light of God continues to shine. And hope is still here. We are in dire times, but I really do believe that God can touch our world. And I really do believe that he will ultimately deal with evil. And that gives me hope. It helps me get up every morning. It helps me face this world. I have hope because of the God I serve. And so, let us gratefully embrace the hope our God offers when the world threatens us with despair. Lewis goes on in that article to talk about we who trust Christ should be looking forward to that day of perfect righteousness which will come when he returns to the world justly. In that coming day, we shall sing with the glorified saints in Revelation, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. And the first church showed us how to do this. In the book of Acts, Peter and John are arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, and firmly warned, you need to quit talking about Jesus. Then who do we follow, obey, you or God? They were released. They went back to the church. They shared what happened. And the church broke loose in an impromptu prayer meeting. They start praying, Lord, they're out to get us. They're threatening us. They're trying to stop us. Doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? But listen to beginning verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. How's that for hope? Lord, yes, they're out to get us. But we're going to trust you're going to give us what we need to get this job done. And God, help us be bold when we do it. That's hope. But here comes the twist in our look at worship today. Because we normally don't think about this. Wholehearted worship is a pathway to sharing. Wholehearted worship is a pathway to sharing. And we need to pay attention. Today, we need to heed the call to declare to the world the majesty and wonder of the Lord. This is absolutely crucial. Listen to what God says through his psalmist to his people. Israel you're supposed to declare the works of God to the nations. 
Yes, you're the chosen people of God, but it's not about something you hoard. It's about something you give away so that you can be a blessing to this world. Nations, when you come to know God and love and adore, you are supposed to share. The love and adoration God had, Israel had for God was meant not to be something you hold on to, but something to you that you'll share. And God said, one day, the nations of this world, people from all tribes, all tongues, everywhere, will serve the living God and join in the chorus. They were told, share what you have found. And I'm meddling here, and I know it, and there's no apologies. If our services fail to instill in us a heart to tell the world about our Savior, they are not wholehearted worship. At the very first of this series, I share with you that I believe worship is the first priority of the church, by which we come to into God's presence, we come to know Him, we come to exalt Him, we come to praise Him. But hear this. The worship of God should strengthen us, embolden us, inspire in us a heart to share the God we serve. Every time we come together to worship Him, every time we go into our own personal times of worship, our love for God should fill our hearts with a desire, Lord, we want to see more people know you. Israel failed to understand that. And yet God still blessed through Abraham and his seed. Because that eventually led to Christ, the bringer of salvation. And so I'm asking you, help, you know, we need to pray. May we understand what Israel did not. Our praise and love for God here must extend beyond ourselves. Herschel Hobbes, way back in the 60s, led the Baptist hour on the radio. He was known as Mr. Baptist. And if you think I've just meddled, get ready. He said, can we really call it worship if it is not followed by service? It is a mockery, he wrote, to praise God inside church walls unless we tell about him outside those walls. True encounter of God will result in the sharing of good news. My prayer, let us take the deeds of God we remember in our worship into a world that has no clue about our great deliverer. If you get excited about God because we've been singing and adoring him and honoring him, if you are filled with the joy of the Lord and the hope of God is yours, don't keep it to yourself. There are people out there who are dying that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need to bring them that good news. Again, 
The first century church showed us how. In Acts 1, Jesus told the disciples, Stay in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And when he does, you will be my witnesses. Now, I've heard people complain that they were told to wait and they had a business meeting and elected Matthias as the 12th disciple. The Bible doesn't condemn that. But the first chapter tells us what else they were doing. One of the most profound elements of worship. Acts 1.14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were praying. They were seeking God's face. They're asking for guidance. They're asking for understanding. They are coming before their God because he is their God of hope. He is their God of joy. He is their God of glory. And the Spirit moved. And we are told in Acts chapter 2 that as they prayed, there was a sound of a blowing wind and, and what looked like fire settled over the heads of every person there. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And they went out into the street and did that. Listen to the reaction of some of the crowd. They were stay, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together and bewildered it because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And they said, what does this mean? Folks, the disciples encountered God and encountered an amazing move of empowerment by God, and they didn't stay in the upper room. They went out. Frederick Denison Maurice was an Anglican theologian in the 19th century. He had a very war stern warning to give. Men must worship something. If they do not worship an unseen being who loves and cares for them, they will worship the works of their own hands. They will secretly bow down to the things they see and hear and taste and smell. These will be their lords and masters. We need to hear that. And we need to know that this is not what God wants for us. Nicholas Ermann was a Carmelite mystic, born in France, and converted at the age of 18. He became a lay brother in an order of Carmelites in Paris where he worked in the kitchen as a servant to servants of God until his death. He's best known by a little book of sayings that he said and shared. His name is Brother Lawrence. That book is The Practice of the Presence of God. He said, when Brother Lawrence uh, lay on his deathbed, rapidly losing physical strength, 
he said something to those around him. And it is recorded that he said, I am not dying. I'm just doing what I've been doing for the past 40 years and what I expect to be doing for all eternity. What is that? I'm worshiping the God I love. So let's give our whole heart to God. Wholehearted worship of the true and living God. Both in our corporate times and our private. Let's give God a worship that honors Him. Let's give God a a worship that bursts with joy as we think about Him that is filled with hope and will ultimately lead us out there. Is that the kind of worship we have come to know? If not, we need to open our hearts to the touch of God. Individually and as a body, together, we need to ask God to free us from rituals of just sheer familiarity so that every time we sing a song, we're singing that song. We're praying the prayers. We're hearing the word. Let's ask God to change our hearts that we may celebrate his mighty acts and life-changing encounter. And I invite you to bow your heads before the Lord right now. And we're going to come to him. And we're going to seek his face. And we are going to ask our God to change our hearts and draw us to what he wants us to be.